Okay, excellent. Let's do this. Uh, so, hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today, I am absolutely delighted to be joined by Darren, McGaugh uh, Darren McGarvey, author of The Social Distance Between Us, How Remote Politics Wrecked Britain, and my absolute favourite book of the last year. It, uh, Yeah, Darren, welcome to the show. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah delighted to be able to speak to you. As as I mentioned before we started, and I hope you don't blush a little bit too much because I'm gonna gonna suck your metaphorical literary dick here for just a second. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it's it, it's a diagnosis of of what it's like and uh, to live in modern Britain that I don't think that anyone else has been able to articulate in the way that you have, um, right from the beginning when you start talking about um, sort of different experiences that people have in, in whatever aspect it might be of life, whether it's um, healthcare, education, um, access to help in any way, shape or form, all the way down to, to the way that the, the pandemic affected all of us and it impacted people's lives in, in different ways. I think the way that you've gone about, about explaining is, is so... It gives me this this fantastic sense that someone actually gets what's going on in the world. <laughs> yeah, and you, you you talk in the book about some of the stuff, and I hadn't planned to talk about this this early in the but but sure since we're here, um, one of the things that you you talk about in your book is is some of the some of the times you've done like work with with young men, especially like trying to help them express themselves better or like uh, learn to articulate how they're feeling better, whether that's just yeah vocal like yeah with words or written down or in, in any sense. Like, and I think it's, why, why do you think that's such a crucial skill to teach young men? And then maybe what would be like your best piece of advice to, to like someone who's, who's trying to learn how to better articulate themselves or and, uh, articulate anger about, about injustices that they're seeing within the world? I did an exercise with some young men where I just read out a list of random words and I asked them to raise their hand if 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 there was any words that I said that they would be they wouldn't be prepared to say. And some of the words were violent sounding words. Some of the words were kind of slang terms. And then other words were like words like beautiful, words like love. And it was really interesting uh, to see how uncomfortable they were. And the point of doing that was to illustrate to them that. Um, while they've adopted an entire way of being and sounding that's about appealing to the people around them, one day very soon, very few of those people are going to be in their life and uh, they're going to be stuck. They're going to be stuck with a, a way of seeing the world, a way of describing the world and describing themselves that's going to act as a kind of repellent of opportunity. So you've got to get the balance between being who you are and being true to who you are, but also being open-minded to new experiences, to changing, to adapting. And uh, unfortunately for, for many young men, one of the reasons that they resort to aggression so quickly is just out of a sheer frustration about being unable to articulate themselves. They get lost for words and uh, they get befuddled in conversations where they're being challenged about things particularly if it's a middle-class person challenging them in that standard passive-aggressive way, a teacher, a police officer. And uh, this, this, this means that they then suffer an additional disadvantage, which additionally predisposes them to 
interactions with the law, mm-hmm. disciplinary action in the education system, and then they get labelled, and then this compounds the further risk of be drawn into the criminal justice system or further excluded. So language is really, really a, a lot more important within the mix of all of this than many people think. Although people like James Kelman, they know that. Um, but but when, a, when an English uh, judging panel snob reads Kelman, uh, and complains about him being an illiterate savage, all they're betraying is their deep, deep-rooted class prejudice. They don't see all of the insight encoded within it, all of the coarse language, because they just wouldn't expect a man of Kelman's social class, or a woman for that matter, to be capable of the sophistication uh, that a middle-class person uh, seemingly possesses inherently. Hmm. Do you think that this ravine between the social classes and their experiences of modern Britain is something that has always existed? And do you think it's being made worse in the modern day by, in in a sense, and possibly even by, by COVID and, and the lockdowns um, that sort of isolated everyone further from the experiences of everyone else? Uh, do, yeah. Do you think it's always been there? Yes, I mean, it's, it's class inequalities are baked into Britain's economic structure mm. for, you know, a thousand years in one form or another. I mean, the whole the whole society sorting themselves into classes was really formalised by the Romans and many of the concepts that they came up with and the principles and the mechanisms they came up with when creating their civilization were, were, were in, a, in a way about uh, dealing with some of the fallout that comes with social class inequality. There were different names for different social classes. People of higher social classes were subject to far far, uh, more lenient punishment for crimes than than lower classes. And then obviously there there was the whole slavery aspect of that particular culture as well. And so, you know, when when, uh, you, you can see how that, you can see, you can see. Then you know when when they withdraw, they go back. Britain moves into the next phase of its development, where it's kind of more feudal in nature. That again is is just another form of of class exploitation. And then we move slowly but surely towards. Sorry, my children are causing absolute mayhem here. That's all right. Guys, guys, I'm trying to work up here. Not go back and 
Sorry about that. That's all right. Don't worry. Um. Just edit that. Uh, sorry, this is this is this is my life. Uh, That's okay. Don't worry. Right. Okay. We'll just jump quickly back in. Yeah. Britain's always been like that in one form or another in terms of being uh, unequal. Now, I don't think anyone would expect a society to be completely equal in terms of outcomes for everyone. There are lots of different uh, factors that can also play a role in how well or less well people do, and individual merit is important to a certain extent. But one of the problems with Britain is that it's run by people who see the world from a particular vantage point, and, and being Viewing the world from that vantage point also, I would argue, um, means that you can kind of assume they have certain interests in life. And unfortunately, there's a sort of relationship between the privileges that some people have and the disadvantages that other people have. And I know there are people out there who just don't agree with that analysis and they think that, you know, meritocracy is real. But, you know, meritocracy is only real when everyone's competing in the same weight class. When you just have middle class people and their kids competing with middle class people and their kids, then the rest of society don't get a chance to demonstrate their merit um, in those fields. And so that's where I think the argument about meritocracy really starts to, to come apart. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that you do fantastically in the book is to, to, re is to, to acknowledge these sorts of issues um, and like bring the sort of like righteous anger in in a sense to 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 bear on the page but but there's no point there's no point in which and I, I smiled every single time you were you were making a heavy point like this and then you you had the wherewithal to not be totally tribal and partisan about it because like mm. you it's and i and this seems like that should just be what a writer does but it's such yeah. a rare thing in 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 modern political or social commentary to see someone like assess and accept the nuance of a situation and still go on to make a really good case about why they think you know one one side or the other maybe may have like a better point or you know it might be more right in a sense and like like to because there's obviously obviously barriers like horrible barriers for a lot of people like a like a large portion of of the the population probably far larger than most people would be would be willing to ad admit or, or or be wanting to to see because mm -hmm. we want to believe that that us or our children or our grandchildren or our brothers and sisters that are family friends that they're all competing in a world whereby the best man or woman will will win where the the, the, the people who who work hard and deserve success will get it and that's unfortunately not the reality and yeah you do you do a fantastic um fantastic job of of well it's of important it's important i feel i feel that when you're in the isolation that's required in order to to complete a book you really get to understand who you really are what your emotional temperament really is and what you really think you know, because there are various roles that you can slip into when you're in different sorts of contexts. So if I was speaking at some kind of rally or whatever, there's a crowd psychology that's going to kick in there where I'm naturally going to emphasise points in a particular way and tone that's appealing to people in that context. 
just as, you know, if I was at home with my kids or my wife and we were discussing something, I would switch into another gear where I'm father and husband mode. And the thing about going into a book and being in isolation is that while now and again thoughts of the reader, which is very abstract, obviously, uh, do creep in, uh, at the same time, the process is so long and arduous that eventually all you're left with as a writer is what you actually believe. And this is further informed as you continue with research, as you take in other points of view. And because you're in the process of writing a book, you're, you're in a place where you're very open to what's going on out there in the world. You're kind of scanning everything subconsciously because you want the book to be as current as it can possibly be. And so you're always looking for opportunities to update it with something more recent. And so for me, what that leaves me with is um, less vitriol, you know, le less less uh, being snide for the sake of it. Because I'm not I'm not writing a book that's just for the people who agree with me. I genuinely believe and know that there are people out there looking to be persuaded of things, and they're not just looking for evidence-based arguments. They're looking for people who carry themselves in a particular way, who have a, an even-handedness, who are emotionally temperate and passionate, obviously. People also attract, being having conviction is an attractive quality as well. And so really, you know, when it's all said and done, after the editorial process uh, begins, then as well as obviously correcting maybe inaccuracies in the book or trimming the book, editing it in conventional ways, you're also looking for, for, for places, or I am looking for places where, is there a gentler way of saying that? Is there a less, uh, is there a less vitriolic way of making that point? And, and I think that that gives the book a kind of balance in terms of tone, because it means when I do talk about things that I'm not prepared to compromise tonally on, like Grenfell, or Jeremy Kyle, then that really hits hard. The, the, the reader can feel that that is a less restrained version of me. And then they might take that anger more seriously because it's modulated and it's not just constant outrage all the time. And then there's just the fact I'm an addict in recovery. I can't afford to be running around foaming at the mouth all the time. Uh, you know these 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 uh, these emotions that are the indulgence of ninety percent of Twitter resentment, anger, fury. Uh, they 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 are uh, unavailable to me, and <laughs> you know because they they bring me into a place of unmanageability in my life that that really risks what I have. So all of these factors, I think, inform the tone of my work when I have real time to sit and consider things. Mm. That's a really interesting thing you, you've said there about the the isolation required to write the book provides you with the most exposure to your own self. That Because I'm, I'm in the middle, I think I've just finished reading Cal Newport's book, Deep Work, for the third time uh, because mm -hmm. I constantly have to refresh myself on, on it because, yeah, I'm, I'm very prone to getting distracted and not focusing on the things. And I'm trying to finish a book myself at the minute. I'm trying to do it by... Find it like carving out as much time by myself with zero distractions as I can, and that's yeah. so. So you think that the, that the isolation helps you to carve away at the noise and really just like once once it's just you and the page. Yeah, because you you go through different stages. I would say for me, twenty percent of the process is fun, <laughs> and usually the stuff I write when it's fun, 
that's the stuff that needs edited the most. Mm. Because with the fun and with that feeling of weightlessness, as as the words just fall out of you and onto the page effortlessly, a kind of overconfidence and grandiosity can creep in. Anyone who makes the assumption that their thoughts are worthy of writing down and sharing with the world has an ego. And, and most people have an ego and it manifests in different ways. And so the stuff that, 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 that seems to come so easily, that's usually the stuff that I have to go back over. Um, and it's an interesting paradox that because the stuff that really that you're grinding out, I mean, that media chapter in the book, um, that comes in two parts. The Jeremy Kyle part was written two years ago and didn't change very much. And it was the only chapter in the book where I resisted any editorial suggestions. I was like, no, everything in there, this is my guitar solo. That was how I described it. Um, um, but the, the problem was I had had, a, I had, had a, a different part one to that chapter, which was an analysis of class through uh, entertainment. So talking about drama, for example, where the rules of drama is that your characters must face turmoil and this must force them to change. And that this is what makes it interesting to watch. But in the soap opera, which is the distinctly working class form of drama, then the dramatic irony and the tension all comes from knowing that these characters are incapable of changing. And, and so it's all about watching them trying to change and then reverting back to what they originally were. And I, th I found it all very, very interesting. And I, I spent like £100 or something on an academic journal that was really like deep diving into this throughout history. But the publisher was very, very strong with me about this needs to be about ownership of media. This needs to be about the bigger picture. And once I conceded to that, it was very difficult for me to change gear and to sit and do that. And I remember spending two, three days in a hotel just nearby my house so that I could still come home and be around and just feeling the stress and the strain of 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 having to, to, to change direction, like doing a 180 turn right at the very end of the process. But I've, I'm experienced enough now to know that when it's very, very difficult and you just feel like you're only getting a, a paragraph down every hour, eventually you will break through the wall that you've hit. And when you do, you will produce the thing that everyone around you knows you're capable of producing. Um, and and so it's, it's weird because isolation in and of itself is not a pleasant thing, but you need it. You need it to write. And so it's getting the balance, I think, between um, making sufficient time to be alone with your thoughts and to truly consider what you're doing and uh, also not allowing yourself to turn your life into a kind of deleted scene from The Shining, which I can admit uh, can occur on occasion <laughs> in my life. Writing a book in lockdown was, was not fun. Yeah, yeah, I remember the, the, the day sitting finishing my first one. It was just me, and I was just like, I have to sit here until it is done. This It's like, I can't remember who it was that said, I think it was Michael Caine. He's like, talent has nothing to do with it. It's about doing it over and over and over and over. And it's the same with everything. It's the same with um, if you're making adjustments to your nutrition, if you're trying to get in physical shape, if you're trying to decorate a house, if you're trying to raise a child, there is the kind of image that's out there about what that success looks and feels like. 
and there's the reality of what achieving anything in life is actually about, which is it all happens incrementally and you go through a cycle of feeling like it's easy and fun to feeling like it's difficult to impossible and then questioning why am I doing this? But as long as you have the discipline to keep making contact and reminding yourself of what the final goal is, then it means that when your will is up and down and dissipates here and there and your motivation can be all over the place, you have a, a way of doing things that is not dependent on all of those little uh, peaks and troughs and rather is more about just being consistent. And that's uh, that's uh, that, that's something that's so important in, in all aspects of life, I would say. Yeah, it's also fascinating that you say that the bits that come easiest are the parts that need the most editing. I'm going to have to really reconsider how I think because I find the literal, I find the bits where I'm in flow, the parts that, that read the best. It's the, but maybe, maybe that's the ego and the hubris speaking. <laughs> well, this is where editors come in handy. You know, this is where an editor comes in really handy, and that's a part of the that's a part of the process that I enjoyed very much with the second book. I was kind of left to my own devices with the first one because it was a local independent publisher, mm -hmm. and um, I had never written a book before, so I didn't really understand what the process was. And so, really, the whole structure of that book, how it feels and how it reads, is a product of me being left alone. Mm -hmm. Um, there were offers of help, but at the time I didn't really understand the the necessity of of, of an editor, and 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 that was probably your one in a million situation where it worked out very well because of the kind of book I was writing, which was mainly driven through memoir and personal story, um, and uh, but with the second book. Uh, once after two years into the process, I, I, I held my hand up and says, I, I need help with this. Then, uh, you know, the help came very quickly and it came in abundance. And uh, and, and and everyone at Ibury really helped me to, to get it over the finish line. And some of the suggestions that I received about structure, some of the suggestions that I received about um, tone, uh, because there were points of the book, I think, where I was maybe toning it down too much. You know, and 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 publisher would remind me. You know, you, you need to say what you really feel, and if you feel angry about this particular thing, uh, then you should be putting that across. So the editorial process, I think, is where most books really do come to life. And again, it's like anything in life; uh, it's very difficult for us to be objective about ourselves and our own work. And that's why we need fresh eyes on it. And also there's something about the humility that's cultivated where you're not frightened of constructive criticism. And I think that that makes you a more well-rounded and mature person uh, in whatever profession you're in or whatever walk of life that you're in. And so I always enjoy something that challenges me as a person as well to grow or mature in some way. And I think that that's really the... the um, that's the personal development aspect that's really happening as you proceed through a big piece of work. Hopefully you would come out of it the other side, a slightly different person, as well as having produced something uh, pers uh, uh, for people to enjoy. Mm. <clears throat> yeah, perseverance is a skill to be learned, I think. I don't think it's a trait. Um, it's, yeah. Anyway, um, I'd love to talk to you about all about writing, but I'd say people probably want to hear about the book itself as well. 
the uh, I'm glad you mentioned Grenfell because that was one of the one of the things that I wanted to bring up because that's the point at which I think in the past maybe 10 15 years where it's been where the difference between the experiences of different classes of people in Britain has been most exposed I think and 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 the the reality I know and I saw so many takes about it that were just like oh well how did this happen like they can't like people can I I can't even fathom how that how the decisions that were made that led to to what happened like it's it is like it's it's a form of like murder by negligence on a scale that's yeah. disgusting and and yeah. and the the sort of lack of consequences is also disturbing like really disturbing yeah. so like what when you when you look at it then what you see is a lot of the kind of what's regarded as the middle class norms and middle class conventions uh, or the ruling class conventions you know the structure of a corporation for example um, chains of accountability, yeah. uh, how disciplinary procedures work. I mean, a politician uh, has to refer themselves to a standards committee if they are suspected of wrong, wrongdoing. Another person can be deported uh, within a couple of days' notice for producing the wrong form. So there's disproportionate consequences for perceived wrongdoing, and that really underscored a lot of this initially. But then there's also the structures and mechanisms by which people are protected from consequences. So despite the fact that you've got people who are very conservative, who believe in personal responsibility, um, I can't really think of one conservative politician or one conservative political leader at any level of governance over the last 10 years uh, who's held their hands up and said, I fucked up, you know, in any instance, whether it be a lot of the, the, the germinal events that led to the Grenfell fire, whether it be uh, even stuff going on in the very top flight of politics, they always have a way of worming their way out of things. They always have a way of doing that. And it's not just because they're very skilled manipulators, it's because there's a whole infrastructure that exists of consultants and advisors and little mechanisms that, that, that mean that uh, yeah, you corporate personalities accept responsibility for things and individual people don't. Mm. And uh, this is really what helps to, to place the truth of Grenfell uh, in, obscure, in obscurity uh, until it's really dug into through a lot of uh, uh, public anger, which then obviously means that the books have all got to get opened and, and, and looked at. And the thing about Grenfell as well is this idea was a freak event. There were, there were fires in London of a similar nature uh, prior to that, in the preceding years, and uh, as well as the warnings of the of the Grenfell Action Group, which were just you know just disturbingly prescient, and so it was just something about that situation. I think that that that, um, that really did help to to remind people of what's at stake when um, when when your society is not only falling into kind of some sort of moral disrepair, but also when um, the consequences uh, of, of, of being uh, complicit in that can be eluded. Uh, because, you know, we've got, we've got uh, over 70 people who lost their lives. There's still people who are probably still homeless or residentially unstable as a result of that. The trauma in that community is, is going to be multi-generational. 
and yet still no one's been held accountable for it. Yeah, uh, it's just it's mind boggling. I didn't. I like. I don't even think the council got a fine, or or anything. Like, I, yeah, it's, and it really is. It's a, the, the insurance company knew more about the dangers of the cladding than than the council did. So if you go in, and there was a lot more detail in the in the chapter, and some of it had to be taken out because it was it was it was just you've got to kind of take into consideration how readable it is. Mm -hmm. But there was a lot of stuff that I produced in the chapter, which I think I maybe just allude to now in a line or two, which is that insurance companies, you know, had assessed the whole thing. And so they understood the risks about fire safety in terms of the gentrification of that building mm -hmm. better than, than the local authority that was uh, running it from a distance. And that tells you everything that you need to know, really. The, the, the people running that council, they didn't really give a shit. And uh, and then suddenly, you know, once they're taking out the, the corpses, um, then everyone's very sad and upset. But um, the, the, the truth is, that's the sort of thing heads need to roll to send a, to send a, a, a unequivocal signal to people in that social class. Um, you know, if you take a position of high responsibility that's well paid and you have power and connections and you fuck up on this kind of scale, then uh, you can end up on the slammer as well as the person who was on the front page of a paper a few days after the fire who was found to be robbing a dead body or something, you know what I mean? Like, you're just as bad, you know? So so in you go, have a few months in jail or a few years, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah, and that, that sort of... That feeling that, like, heads should roll for something is... And this this lack of consequences that we kind of touched on a few times for, for people of a certain social class or a certain position of power is, is, is really the issue. It's, it's the reason for a lot of the anger, I would say. And probably also like, not just on a, in a sense of people's like mistrust or, or, or anger towards institutions. I think it's, it's, it's very much at the root of the, of the collapse of, of a lot of our institutions so that they've, that they've, they, they've become like horrible disfigured imitations of the thing that they were designed to do or the, you know, the laws they were designed to uphold or, you know, whatever function it might be, whether we're talking about, um, you know, the NHS or, you know, social services, uh, like, um, any, yeah, any policing, exactly. Like any of these things, why do you like when do you think it was that we stopped we stopped demanding those sorts of consequences well when when um i think a kind of apathy sets in when you see disproportionate consequences between social classes uh you start thinking this is just the way it is what's the point in challenging it and so i think what what politicians have, have got I've started to do quite skillfully is to be distracting us with, uh, you know, culture war stuff and stuff that I wouldn't say is not important. You know, I don't take the position that anyone out there who has an issue about illegal immigration uh, is, 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 is acting on complete falsehoods or is driven by xenophobia and bigotry. I think most people begin 
from a place where you know their concerns could be characterised as um, understandable or legitimate based on the information that they have. Uh, but what politicians help to do is to actually bring take people who are in a place where they can be reasoned with and bring them further along a kind of conveyor belt towards less and less rational positions on things. They begin to draw connections between different things. And so if you turn on GB News uh, with the fallout from this whole Philip Schofield episode, you'll see them trying to braid together uh, different elements with ITV apparently being a woke broadcaster. This is the same broadcaster that ran Jeremy Kyle's show into the ground and kept on broadcasting it until someone literally died. Uh, this is the broadcaster that has no editorial slant, no house style, never originates anything. It's literally just a bunch of commercial incentives producing things in a zombie-like state um, armed to the teeth with public relations experts. Right, there's nothing woke about ITV. The GB News sees an opportunity here to move into a new position in our culture through this Philip Schofield story by not just talking about uh, the ins and outs of that, but then bringing in wokeness. Right, the ITV's woke. Then bringing in something about you know um, Prince William um, or his wife, and so so what they do is they create this impression that all of that is interconnected. And uh, for a politician, that means that the terrain is much easier to navigate because all they have to do is point to the go-to folk devil of the day uh, whenever any serious issue is being discussed. And because people are so stressed out, because people are so emotionally vulnerable, and because we have all this build-up of prior resentments about prior unrelated issues, it's like a couple getting into an argument almost where they start casting up things that happened two years ago, five years ago. They start talking in hyperbole. You always do this or you always do that. And once you're in that terrain, it's all irrational discussion. And politicians, they can whip people up into a frenzy through that. And that makes everyone a lot easier to manage. So I think that that's really how they've managed to paper over the cracks um, of, of class inequality because they do that divide and conquer technique. And then obviously parties more to the left of that, you know, Starmer's Labour project. You can see how they yeah. truly feel they have no option but to just out-Tory the Tories. Yeah. You know, because they recognise if they were to speak sensibly about things, that's not going to get the front page. Mm -hmm. And that was the case particularly when they went after Sunak around him apparently, you know, being lenient on child abusers. That was a dirty, nasty type of campaign. But the reason they stuck by it was because all the advice that they were getting was you're, no one's going to know what your policy is unless you take this tone and this strategy. And that's why they never apologised for it. And unfortunately, that just moves the Overton window more and more to the non-rational type of discourse that we see. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's very easy as well for, for like, a little bit on the other side of that sort of issue where people especially working class people with with like legitimate concerns about say like high levels of immigration pushing down wages and you know um maybe the lack of housing available uh being being exacerbated by by that you know like 
obviously there's there's other factors involved in in these things do you know what i mean it's about about training the the, the skills we're given to the workforce the amount of housing we're building but like th those concerns are legitimate i think in 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 some senses and and then instead of addressing that and going yeah okay so government needs to build more housing and you know the reason that there's such high levels of immigration is because we are not training the people that the, the country needs especially for things like the nhs and those discussions about how how you know we might address these issues are just derailed by whipping whipping the other side up and be like oh look at all these xenophobic you know racist right-wing bigots that it's it's yeah it's a very easy way to distract from the underlying like real things yeah and and, and to be honest it's there is a kind of symmetry at play because i mean for 40 years i've been brought up and a left-wing culture where whatever Tory Prime Minister's been in charge has been the worst person ever. And now I think to myself, mm, I don't know if I could stand up here and seriously argue that David Cameron is worse than Boris Johnson or seriously argue that George W. Bush is worse than Donald Trump. <laughs> um, you know, like, so when, when, when the quality of politics and politicians... Uh, declines year upon year, it recontextualizes uh, figures from the past. But you start to think, you know what? At least they believed in something. At least they had an argument. At least they got out there and fought for their position. Um, whereas now it seems to be people are adopting policy positions based on uh, what's trending. Um, and this is kind of done on the hoof almost. Yeah. And it's all about gaining some kind of short-term electoral or media advantage. And 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 this 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 means that the sort of person who excels in that kind of environment is the sort of person who has no convictions about anything, who 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 sees power as power for its own sake. And unfortunately, when when that sort of character is situating themselves around power all the time, then you you can't expect anything else than than the the country to be feeling like it's in a constant state of upheaval and crisis. Um, I mean, if you take a politician like Tony Blair, for example, who I feel I was quite generous about in the book, despite the fact that I didn't pull any punches with respect to what his legacy is. But on the left, um, because of Blair's position on Iraq, which I disagree with and I think was the wrong position. And I think deep down, all of them know it was the wrong position, but they've gone on too long now to hold their hands up and apologise for it. Mm. And fair enough, they've got to put their head in the pillow at night and live with it, right? But this idea that that, that he wasn't a skilled communicator, this idea that he wasn't, a, there, there was no reason why he should have been elected in the first place. Mm. If you go back and listen to Tony Blair, debate, if you go back and listen to Tony Blair reasoning through a point of view with a very, very like critical journalist or whatever, you can see why people thought this guy is competent. He's a competent kind of human being. Uh, he's the sort of person you can trust with power. And whatever you think of his character now after the passage of time, then I, I feel like on the left we should be able to acknowledge basic facts about someone, even if they did make decisions that we think were well, well, the wrong decisions. Um, but on the left, you have a kind of a, a flip side of what you see on the right, which is a person says or does something disagreeable, 
and this means that this means that everything they say or do going forward must be discounted or seen through the lens of that other terrible thing that they did. Obviously, there are instances where that is relevant if someone shows such low character they're not worth listening to. But my view with Blair, for example, having studied the whole New Labour project for many years, looked at all of the various inquiries into the Iraq war, um, then then uh, what you see is a politician who's really just been kind of hoodwinked by the Americans who played them at every single stage because they needed a human shield uh, to buy them some time to do what they were always going to do. And Blair's big, big flaw as a person is that reverence he has power. You know, and that doesn't come any more powerful than getting flown over to the White House, where really, you know, he was just kind of, he was, he was sort of, he was used really. Um, I don't think he's evil. I don't think he wanted to kill Iraqis. I don't think there was some darker ploy underneath it. And while obviously a lot of that stuff still did happen, and that has to be, people have to be held to account for that. Also, at the same time, characterising it as something more than what it is. Um, is is a similar form of non-rationality, I would argue, and uh, even me just saying this right now will trigger people, um, you know. But that's not the intent, you know. What I mean, it's just like when I sat and thought about it for a long time, I thought on the left we're guilty sometimes of that non-rational way of thinking and conducting ourselves. It's just that we don't see it like that because we believe in what we believe in. Yeah, yeah, it's like purity tests almost, um, and 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 you think you're right. We're we're very fast to throw the baby out with the bathwater on a lot of people who 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 are who who care like the the, the the i think honestly i think this is something as i talk about this a lot but one of the things that i think the more people i interview for this podcast the more people i speak to in life generally the more i realize that like there's so few people out there who are actually bad actors who are genuinely bad people trying to make life horrible and awful for some other people in the world. But almost everyone is arriving at the, the positions or policy ideas or opinions that they hold because they want a better world. And it's not because they, you know, like there's the people, even, even like, you know, we talked about like the, 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 the working class people being like painted as right wing xenophobes, like the ones who are, who are living in, in like, the husks of former industrial like powerhouses and they're watching they've watched their city decline for 40 years and they've watched yeah. uh, they've watched as like opportunity has disappeared as wages have been driven down um and they 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 legitimately voice an opinion based on like you know things used to be better just even something as simple as that, you know, things used to be better. And then immediately before anyone considers, you know, that, you know, maybe they don't mean because everyone was white. They mean because like a one income could support a family, that there was opportunity. There was, you know, prosperity, a bit of positivity in, in the streets. There was a flourishing high street, you know, they were making stuff in this town, you know, it was a, a thriving place. And and the people get painted as like, oh, you know, you just want to take us back to this time when, you know, straight white men ruled. And the the, the mischaracterization, uh, mischaracterization of people's actual intentions, I think, is a real problem. Yeah. Well, if you look at, if you look, Corbyn was not exactly a let's open all the borders type of politician. No. He took a position on immigration. 
he took a position on that, um, and and it was a position that. But it, so the fact that any politician who wants to get into power has to have a policy about immigration shows you that there is an issue about immigration in Britain that needs to be dealt with. And the question then is, how is that debate characterised? Is it characterised as kind of almost racist? Suella Braverman, uh, paedophiles, uh, they're coming in, they're coming from all over the place, they're gangsters, they're doing this, blah, 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 blah. Because that's like catnip, you know. It might get you somewhere in a short term, but also it curdles the discussion and really kind of, it makes the it, it makes your point automatically illegitimate any legitimate point you might have. So it's weird that a politician might take a position on immigration, which is broadly similar, uh, but depending on what side of, of the, the, the fence they're on, then that'll either be seen as the best thing ever or the worst thing ever. Um, I think most politicians are quite moderate when it comes to immigration, whether on the left or right. Um, they speak in the same sort of tones about it. Where you see conservative politicians being kind of, I think, tending to, to, towards far right rhetoric, as um, as is when that's just out of pure political desperation, you know, yeah. because the, the media has such such a, a grip over the, the quality of, of discourse. But when when Cameron was beginning to kind of fall into those tropes, I didn't for a second think he actually believed it. I thought he thought this is a short term strategy to get to a place that we need to get to. But every time Suella Braverman opens her mouth, um, I truly believe that she she is that type of character. And what's also interesting is for years we've been getting told by some people on the left that only white people are capable of racism. And now those people are stuck for a word to describe Suella Braverman. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't even thought about it like that. That's fucking hilarious. Oh... <laughs> uh... That's brilliant. I hadn't I hadn't even thought of it like that. Um, so I, I have you got time? There's just one last thing I wanted to sort of ask you about. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we talked um sort of really really briefly, and we sort of mentioned about your book. Sort of uh touches on the different experiences of the pandemic that that, that different people had, and you talked about in a different context the 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 sort of moral disrepair of of british society like the, the the yeah i think it'd be very hard you'd be hard placed to find someone who wouldn't agree that that is what has been happening to britain over the past you know handful of decades i i i'm not sure there's many people who would disagree with you on that point but that's something that, that that really it 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 really sat weird with me through the entire pandemic and i'm, I'm hoping maybe you'll like be able to shed some light on your thoughts on on this is that empathy for people's positions when it wasn't your own like say that that had deter determined that they were going to make different decisions to you or had different opinions to you what was so so offensive and like like anger inducing to some people through the through the whole thing it really weirded me out that we sort of seem to have lost perspective that other people might be in different situations to us like yeah like some like say say like working class a working class person's objection to like having lockdowns mean schools were closed if you're a single parent with four kids and one laptop 
like you know yeah. you, you, you to, to say I, I think kids should be in school all of a sudden you're a granny killer when your own mm. like person like the, the the horrible horrible things that people had to go through like through through those two years like fear isolation um like people unable to see dying relatives people unable to like continue with their lives in the way they had like I, the the humor and suffering that we showed zero empathy for through those those two years is I've never quite got over it. And I was wondering yeah. if you, if you had any, any thoughts on, on why we were so unable to be empathetic for other people's positions through, through the, through that time. Well, it goes, it goes back to the original point from the first question, first of all, but then also the additional emotional psychological strain of the pandemic, uh, means that we're under a level of chronic stress where we can't access those other emotions because we're in a sort of we're in a sort of minor fight fight or flight um we're constantly being bombarded with hot takes negativity we don't really know what's true or right because there's so much information out there so the positions that we're arriving at what whether we like to tell ourselves that we understand the evidence the positions are emotionally based or faith-based. We're placing our faith in an expert of a particular stripe who's saying a particular thing and we're saying, that's the evidence that I believe. And it worked, no matter what position you took or what situation you were in, I think we were both transmitters of that lack of empathy at points and we were repositories of that lack of empathy at points. I remember when I was on Facebook and we were talking about it was vaccines or something and I was just there. Uh, I was just making a, a joke about what I imagined in my head to be like your kind of Alex Jones tinfoil hat wearing conspiracy theorist or or I was making a, a or I was post a picture of myself after getting a vaccine or something like that. I didn't really talk about COVID much uh, in terms of expressing big strong opinions about things like lockdowns. I sympathised with the politicians the first time round. Mm -hmm. Uh, there wasn't a country in the world that didn't lock down. So there was nothing distinctly authoritarian about Britain doing it, to be honest. Um, plus, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't subscribe to the view that there was some big economic ploy to disempower people financially because actually most companies took a hit, most business took a hit as a result of lockdown as well. Apart from obviously the big tech companies that just raced away. Yeah, well, but they're, they're, seeing, like, they're seeing layoffs now anyway. Like they're all. Yeah. yeah. So I, I just I I I, I remember, um, but I remember the pushback I would get for what I would consider just to even be relatively minor quips or updates about things, and then suddenly what I realised was I was I had this point, I had this idea in my head that that, that the, of 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 who the people were that I would be making fun of. And I didn't realise that that actually ran right through my social group now. That run right through my family. That runs right through my social mass groups of friends, my recovery community. All of that divergence of opinion, suddenly it was very tangible and it was very close to home. Because things like Brexit, things like COVID, all of these things, they, they transcend the other previous political divides. You can't predict a person's position on one thing based on their position on another when it comes to these issues. Mm. And so it creates all these weird folds that put strain on your family dynamics, that put strain on your relationships. And it took a while for me to learn, actually. There's some things maybe I shouldn't say on Facebook if I value friendships and I, I value kind of mutual respect. 
And so it was. I, I would say a few. There was a, some friendships maybe that that suffered perhaps beyond repair um, during that uh, period. And I think maybe there are a lot of other people out there who are the same. Social media, in the long run, once we manage to get some of the genie back in the bottle, which we'll have to, um, is is just a really profound, disruptive, radical thing to happen to a society. And it's taken us a long time as individuals as communities and as societies to start to understand what this really is, that we live in echo chambers, that, that we've got an algorithm that's shown us things that thinks that we'll like rather than things that are important. And how do you decide how to regulate that? Is it authoritarian to start telling a company what it should show people? Um, who knows? So much to discuss. And we've not even got our heads around that. Now we're dealing with artificial intelligence. So I think hopefully the lessons that we didn't learn from social media and 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 the kind of laissez-faire approach we took to social media in the beginning, hopefully that will serve as a good incentive to get right around the issue of artificial intelligence before it races away from us and just creates additional uh, problems for us. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I hope so. Like social, yeah. I think we're still figuring out what social media is to human society or what it should be even. Um, and it's 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 interesting to watch the old world burn in like Facebook and Instagram. Like it's hilarious because I I was looking at I, like I, a friend of mine recently like read my first book, um, and they were talking hard. I I went back and they were asking me questions about it, and I was talking a lot about Facebook because in 2016 for the Brexit vote, Facebook was the the place where everything was happening basically, right? It was all the dark ads, all the all the, the absolute rubbish from leave.eu, like the turkey things, you know, there was a lot, a lot of like shady stuff going on. And Facebook mm-hmm. is irrelevant now. It's just irrelevant. Like it's, 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 it is just, it's dropped off the face of the earth in terms of like it's, it's relevance to like, yeah, everyday society, which is wild yeah. in, in that length of time. So, so it'd be interesting to see. Um, the, the last very fast thing I want to ask was you said there, do you think that like chronic stress has a lot to do with the lack of empathy? Do you think that that the that, that is just um, something that a lot of people are dealing with just all the time now in, in modern Britain, that there's there's like a portion of society who are just permanently in that chronic stress yeah. phase? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is really what poverty safari kind of ends up being about mm-hmm. to a certain extent. From the commentary point of view, um, as what what is the driver at the level of the individual of the lifestyle and the habits that we get into that create poor health outcomes and how that's created by the environment around us, and um, this I think all of that stuff is then compounded with the additional stimulus of social media. The 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 average person has a very kind of finite amount of issues that they can cope with. And unfortunately, most people aren't really taught the tools that you can implement um, when you're facing stress. And, and and you don't want to talk to someone about reducing their stress either when they're stressed. Mm. So what tends to happen now is that we just become reactive. People get stressed, they react to it by becoming stressed. Then politicians or other people they disagree with react to that stress. And then it just becomes a kind of reciprocation of various positions based on a stress-based outlook. 
and and I think that this does inform the the, the the kind of discourse generally because when we're stressed, we aren't really able to actively listen. We're very selective in terms of what we can actually pick up, what's going on. When we're stressed, we, we're we're not very geared up for empathy when we're stressed. And all of these things, to be honest, um, make proper discussion and understanding uh, virtually impossible. And so it has a very corrosive effect because it becomes a kind of race to the bottom in terms of communication. Mm. And ultimately, when you have issues at play as complicated as they can be uh, in the UK just now, communication is very important, you know, for setting a tone, for conveying information. Uh, and, and unfortunately, I think media uh, media can feed into this as well. I don't have an answer or a solution for it, unfortunately, because it's it's um, it's 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 kind of its own thing. It, it needs to kind of peter out. I think one way of reducing the stress levels would be um, to, to for politicians to to get a proper grip on what's going on just now in terms of living costs. I mean, you know, there's just Every other day, someone tossing themselves off a pier, hanging themselves from a tree. Fucking, it's just, it's, it's, it's just, it's a nightmare for a lot of folk who are out there just now. But the stress just becomes overwhelming for them. So uh, I, I don't really have an answer yet. I can only look at my own stress levels as an individual and how I deal with them, and hopefully, maybe in some small way, contribute by modelling a way of being that's about more mindfulness in the face of stress and being part of a community and all the things that increase well-being, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I want to actually, I don't normally do this, but I want to finish by reading a little bit from, from your book um, because I was just, I sent I sent a picture of it to someone um, and was just, yeah, they, they, were, they were blown away that someone could write this, <laughs> uh, basically. And now I'm not going to be able to find the exact bit that I want. <laughs> <laughs> here we are um i'm not sure exactly why this reminded me of it but you are going to go for this um so post-industrialization is often framed in employment terms traditional industries were wound down creating mass unemployment and economic displacement which contributed to social problems like crime and drug addiction high-rise housing became synonymous with dereliction Many developments were pitched to poor areas of progress, but instead unlocked the back door for the unwieldy forces of gentrification. In the analysis of the effects of deindustrialization, too little is made of the abrupt disruption and thoughtless dispersal of individuals and families who had once lived side by side. Many of these communities were ripped up by their cornerstones with little understanding of the possible long-term social consequences. The key aspect con uh, conspicuously absent from the mainstream post-industrial mythos illustrated so often by the iconography of demolitions and mine and shipyard closures is perhaps the most pivotal. The needlessly violent serving of vital social severing of vital social connections forged over decades that once bind individuals, families and communities in tight-knit resilient groups. Connections laid down over generations that granted a sense of belonging and shared history in which people could orient themselves and guide others. I think that that speaks more than anything else as to how we probably get ourselves out of this and it's it's community and social connection. Yeah, I definitely. I mean, when you listen to people talking about the good old days, whether they were materially poorer, whether they were objectively less opportunities, what they're looking back at through those tinted glasses is a time where you could leave your kids with your neighbour. 
a time where you knew all of the local shopkeepers, they knew what you took in your tea, they knew how hot you liked your rolls, they knew your first name, you would pick up a conversation where it left off the previous time that you had seen them, and all of those little interactions, the cumulative impact is a sense of, this is my place, I belong here, these people know me, I know them, and that brings into play all sorts of informal social controls and conventions that help that community to manage itself to some extent. There's less need for police, there's less need for health intervention. But now we're in a situation where it used to take a village to raise a kid, and now you know a single mother's got to do it on her own with three children because you know her husband died in a car crash or died from alcoholism or died or is in prison or something like that. We haven't really acknowledged that the way that we operate in families and communities now is fundamentally different to any other time in our social history. And I'm not just talking about Britain, I'm talking about human beings. Mm-hmm. The way that we live now is is we're not evolutionary evolutionarily designed for this kind of living. And at some point, you know, once we've put out all the fires, if we can, we need to start thinking about how do we get back to designing a society that gets the most out of people that's about making sure that our basic needs are met um, socially? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, Darren, I've taken up enough of your time. Um, it has been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Um, everybody like I, becomes more recommended than anything. Go check out Darren's book, The Social Distance Between Us. Um, thanks very much, man. Is there anything you want to plug? No, I'm I'm good. I mean, I'm I'm playing now. Uh, I've got two gigs down Devon uh, in July at Yaleford and in Plymouth. Uh, this is, I think, the seventh and eighth of July. So anyone watching who's down that neck of the woods, the fancies coming along, please do. I think there are limited tickets available for both. Um, but apart from that, uh, the next thing I'll be doing will be a series on BBC Two. So this will be the first thing I've done on network television. And hopefully that'll be out um, either by the end of the year or the start of next. So look out for it. Oh, that's exciting. I'll look out for that. Hey, everyone. Thanks for making it right the way to the end of the podcast. I love that you tuned in this long. Do me a favor, hit subscribe because 80% of you bastards are not subscribing, but you're watching my videos. See you next time.